Section 33 of The Heroines of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine H. The Heroines of History by John S. Jenkins. Section 33. Catherine of Russia. Part 2. Here he wrote a letter to the Empress, promising submission and acknowledging his misconduct. She deigned him no answer, but with her army approached his palace. At first he ordered a horse, intending to fly to the frontiers of Poland, but, always irresolute, he changed his plan and directed his fortress to be dismantled and his Holstein guard to retire to a distance, that Catherine might be touched by his entire surrender. She caused him to be seized, however, and placed in close confinement till he wrote and signed a declaration that he was not capable of reigning, and that he voluntarily abdicated the throne. Even this did not serve to secure his liberty. The same night he was conducted by a strong guard to Ropecha, a small imperial palace about fourteen miles from Petersburg. In despair at his sad prospects of imprisonment, he sent a message to Catherine, entreating her to send an old negro buffoon who had often amused him, a favorite dog, his violin, a Bible, and a few romances. She maintained a scornful silence. Catherine had been crowned empress. She had published a manifesto, declaring her motives to have been a tender love for her people, and anxiety for the preservation of the holy Greek religion. She had used every means to beguile and deceive the troops who were necessary to her success, but she still felt insecure. She was alarmed at the murmurings and resistance of various distant towns and cities, which would have declared for Peter the Third had he succeeded in presenting himself before them. A career of guilt, once commenced, leads to manifold crimes. Probably Catherine, in her first design of seizing the throne, had no thought of imbruing her hands in the blood of those who, as descendants of Peter the Great, and rightful heirs to the throne, were revered in the eyes of the people. Harassed by constant fears of insurrection, and unwilling to resign what she had so dexterously grasped, she listened to the whispered suggestions of the fiendish courtiers who had thus far assisted her, and connived at, or at least did not prevent, the assassination of Peter the Third, in order to remove one so obnoxious to her repose. This act was accomplished with such secrecy and deception that the Emperor's disappearance long remained a mystery, though no one hesitated to cast suspicion on Catherine. The revolting details have since been revealed. Alexey Orloff, noted for his strength and brutality, undertook with two companions the execution of the deed. Seven days after the Empress had been crowned, which occurred June 28, 1762, Alexey repaired to the palace where Peter was confined, and, as he had often done before, dined with the Emperor. Lieutenant Pasek, who was present, assisted him in introducing poison into the wine poured out for Peter. The unsuspecting emperor drank freely, and presently was seized with violent pain. 
Recognizing the design, he called for milk to allay his sufferings, and mingling his cries of agony with reproaches. They again pressed him to swallow more of the fatal beverage, but he resisted with all his strength. His valet, hearing the noise, rushed in. Peter threw himself in his arms, exclaiming faintly, "'It was not enough to deprive me of the throne of Russia. I must now be murdered!' The valet attempted to defend him, but Orloff, with his giant strength, easily thrust him from the room, and returned to his victim. The emperor fought with the strength of despair, but after a fierce and terrible struggle he was thrown to the floor, and strangled with a napkin snatched from the dinner-table. Alexey Orloff immediately mounted his horse and rode at full speed to Petersburg to inform the empress. On his arrival he found her just going to make her appearance at court. She maintained her composure, ease, and usual gaiety, dined in public, and in the evening again held a court. The following day, while she was dining with the foreign ministers and a few courtiers, a messenger was ushered in with great ceremony, and announced the tidings of the emperor's death. Catherine immediately arose from table, and with her handkerchief at her eyes, hastened to shut herself in her own apartments, where she remained for several days, as if overwhelmed with sorrow. During that time, she caused a manifesto to be published which, after mentioning his illness, declared that, in obedience to the divine command by which we are enjoined to preserve the life of our neighbor, we ordered that Peter should be furnished with everything that might be judged necessary to restore his health. It also expressed her great affliction. But despite this fabric of falsehoods and Catherine's artful assumption of grief, no one was so stupid as to believe what she asserted, though no one dared say a word upon the matter and that was all the empress wished. The remains of Peter were brought to the capital and buried with great pomp. Her next movement was to send Ivan back to prison, and at the same time she gave orders to put him to death if any attempt was made to deliver him. There were many who sympathized with the unfortunate prince, fated to spend a lifetime, from infancy to manhood, in dungeons and fortresses, where he was subjected to every manner of suffering. Ivan is described as having fine light hair, regular features, an extremely fair complexion, a figure of commanding height and fine proportions, and a voice sweet and touchingly mournful in its accents. A conspiracy was set on foot to rescue him and place him upon the throne, headed by an officer named Mirovich, who forced his way into the fortress of Schlusselburg, where Ivan was confined, determined to deliver him. The guards immediately assassinated the defenseless prince and flung his body before Mirovich, who immediately threw down his sword and surrendered. All who were engaged in this conspiracy were imprisoned, knouted, or sent to Siberia. Catherine, now relieved of those who could cause her the most uneasiness, turned her attention to measures which would secure the applause of her subjects and give her the fame she was ambitious to gain abroad. She no longer needed the services of the Princess Dashkoff, who had become odious to her, notwithstanding her sacrifices of family and of herself 
in the cause of her friend. Catherine was not capable of friendship. She made tools of those whom she flattered with her confidence. Princess Dashkoff, in the beginning of the revolution, had put on the uniform of the guards, and now asked, as a recompense for her services, the title of colonel of a regiment. To this the empress scornfully replied that, the academy would suit her better than a military corps. The princess resented her ingratitude, and spoke of it among her friends, with the bold independence natural to her. But for such imprudence she was ordered to retire to Moscow. The archbishop of Novgorod, who had also materially assisted in Catherine's designs, was disappointed in his expected reward, and dismissed with a warning as to how he vented his rage. These and similar occurrences caused discontent and irritation among the people, which took so serious a turn that it was thought for a time Catherine would be hurled from the throne she had usurped. But her courage and presence of mind never forsook her. She inflicted such terrible punishments upon the ringleaders as effectively prevented any farther demonstrations of dissatisfaction. Among the first acts of her reign was the confirmation of the two principal edicts of her predecessor, which had given him such popularity at his accession. But she took good care to appropriate all the credit to herself. With a policy that consulted the low state of the finances, she also ratified the treaties that had been made with Denmark and Prussia, by thus securing peace, she was enabled to turn her attention to the improvement and aggrandizement of Russia. She instituted many wise and admirable regulations that secured the highest encomiums from other nations, though it is said she was undeserving her celebrity as a lawgiver, since her famous code consisted of a tissue of paragraphs taken principally from Montesquieu's Esprit de Loi and Beccaria's Treatise on Crime and Punishment, and other well-known writers. She laid claim to her code, as having originated it herself, and complacently received the adulations of all Europe. She certainly deserves credit, however, for her energy and skill in devising and prosecuting arrangements for the founding of colleges and hospitals on a grand scale in the principal cities, for the establishment of a foundling and lying-in hospital, under the most benevolent and salutary regulations, and for the magnificent seminaries she endowed at Petersburg, one for the education of five hundred young ladies, the other a military school for young men, both of which are still the pride of Petersburg. She also invited foreigners from every country, whether professional or scientific men, artisans, mechanics, or common laborers, an invitation which quickly populated the deserts of Russia with a host who loudly murmured their discontent after they arrived and regretted their foolishness in abandoning better homes. All this and more was accomplished in the first year and a half of Catherine's reign. She added to her own reputation abroad for sagacity and wisdom by assisting at all the deliberations of the councils, read the dispatches from her ambassadors, dictated or wrote the answers, and attended to all the minutiae of foreign affairs. She often had interviews with Munich, who suggested to her the plan of driving the Turks from Constantinople, and with Bestuchev, 
a man of profound policy, who had the experience of Grand Chancellor in Elizabeth's reign, and who kept Catherine informed of the politics and resources of the European courts. In her interviews with foreign ministers, she assured them of her independence and courage, told them the world must not judge of her yet, that she had scarcely begun her reign, and would surprise Europe in time with her great exploits, and assured them she should behave with the princes of other nations like a finished coquette. But in the midst of all her occupations, the Empress did not forget her old favorites, or neglect to find new ones. In this she imitated the profligate example of Elizabeth. Gregory Orloff, brother of Alexei, she seemed to entertain a sincere affection for, although he did not unite polished manners with beauty of person. He was ambitious, and hoped the Empress would give him her hand, and thus elevate him to the dignity of a sovereign. Catherine would only consent to a concealed marriage, but that was not sufficient for the haughty but low-born Gregory. Fearful she would degrade her rank by marrying a man whom everyone detested, her turbulent subjects concocted new conspiracies. While on a visit to Moscow, Catherine discovered one of these plots, and, alarmed for her safety, returned immediately to Petersburg, entering that city with a pompous and magnificent display, which she intended should awe the disaffected. She believed that the Princess Dashkoff influenced some of these intrigues, and determined to conceal the dislike she bore her, and invited her to court again. She wrote a flattering and deceitful letter, asking her knowledge of the conspiracies, which was not calculated, however, to blind the quick-witted princess, who had too much occasion to know Catherine's artfulness to trust her words. To the long and affectionate letter of the Empress, the wounded friend replied with daring haughtiness in a few words, Madam, wrote she, I have heard nothing, but if I had heard anything, I should take good care how I spoke of it. What is it you require of me, that I should expire on a scaffold? I am ready to mount it. Catherine was chagrined at this display of spirit, but did not take revenge, and left the princess in disgrace to travel about Europe. She everywhere attracted attention by her singular and bold manners. After her anger towards the empress had subsided, she returned to Russia, and Catherine, thinking it best to conciliate one so cognizant of her crimes, appointed her president of the academy. Here she presided with the whims and temper of a virago, deprived the professors of fuel in winter from avaricious motives, and commanded them as she would have done a regiment of soldiers. Wrapped in rich furs, she seated herself in the midst of the shivering professors, dictating to them what they knew better than she, till they were tempted to abandon the country where the empress was content to have but the shell of science and literature, without the colonel. Renown was Catherine's sole aim. For that, she continued to endow colleges and academies of science and art, which often proceeded no further than the selection of a site, or, if they were built, rarely afforded anything besides opportunities for grand and bombastic speeches from the empress. She encouraged the arts, inviting artists to her court, and paid most extravagant prices for pictures, though without the least taste to judge of their merits or defects. 
Her end was accomplished, however, so long as the recipients of her generous encouragement sounded her fame. Many of the pictures decorated the walls of her palace, being fitted together without frames, so as to cover on each side the whole of the walls, without the slightest attention to disposition or general effect. When a place could not conveniently be filled, the pictures were cut to suit the vacancy. Catherine prided herself upon the generosity of her gifts to those who visited her court, and to those who performed important services. She maintained a magnificence in her movements and decorations that exceeded all the courts of Europe, and added to the glory of her achievements by founding cities as well as colleges, which those who visited her vainly looked for. Many of them were never to be found, for the very good reason that she was satisfied to designate a site, give a name, and see it swell the list of her boasted cities, though it after all existed only in her imagination. Joseph the Second once accompanied her to lay the foundations of a new city. On his return he dryly remarked, The Empress and I have this day achieved a great work. She has laid the first stone of a great city, and I have laid the last. He was just in his surmise. The city can nowhere be found except upon some of the maps of Russia. While thus engaged at home, she did not neglect to increase her power abroad. Poland, for many years, had gradually extended its possessions by the intermarriage of Polish princesses with the heirs of royal domains in Russia. Catherine, therefore, in a measure ruled the election of kings in that republic. Upon the death of Augustus III, she contrived, partly by the force of arms and partly by cunning policy, to secure the election of one of her old favorites, Count Poniasowski, a man who is described as having but small capacity to govern, rather weak than gentle, possessing a mind that was better calculated to shine in social intercourse than to sway men of cultivation. Tall, well-made, of a figure at once commanding and agreeable, he could more skillfully play the lover than the courtier. He was rather forced upon than accepted by the Poles, who loudly murmured at the accession of one who was neither distinguished by birth nor any brilliant achievements. Soon after his election, difficulties commenced in Poland which, by causing innumerable divisions of parties, weakened and exposed it to the rapacious robbery of Russia and Prussia. In 1563, a law had been passed which granted equal rights to all religious persuasions, whether Greek, Lutheran, or Catholic. In 1763, however, the Catholics had obtained a decided superiority, and excluded from the Diets all those who did not adopt their faith. This occasioned serious contention. The various parties received the name of dissidents, and applied to Russia for assistance in claiming their rights. Catherine sent an army, under the command of Prince Repuin, who immediately seized the principal persons in the Diet and exiled them to Siberia. The king himself, through the instigation of Orloff, was treated with great indignity. Prince Repuin commanded like a despot in Warsaw, and the Poles began to be amazed at the dangerous assistance they had sought, 
and beheld their country overrun with Russian soldiery, from whom they had no power to extricate themselves. They could only submit to the terms the Empress chose to grant them. She already proposed the recovery of those parts of Poland which had been annexed from Russia, but her plans were not yet fully formed. She contented herself for a few years to use her domineering influence over a nation that she was in honor bound to protect and not to oppress. In 1768, Turkey declared war against Russia in consequence of the oppression of Poland. The latter, suffering all the horrors of a war partly civil, partly religious, and partly foreign, and its haughty brave nobles, unwilling to brook the outrages of Russia, applied to Turkey for relief. Catherine, with undaunted courage, accepted the challenge, prepared an army and powerful fleets, and speedily sent them against her enemies. While they gained victories along the Danube, the Pruth, and sailed triumphant on the Yuxin, Catherine was occupied at home in vast preparations to attack them even in the isles of Greece. Her dockyards were filled with workmen who busily constructed ships of war. Her cities resounded with the clang of metal, molded and shaped into death-dealing weapons by the hands of skillful artisans. Her politicians were engaged in exciting debates as to the expediency of the undertaking. Her foreign ministers and emissaries were directed to secure the non-interference of other nations and permission to enter their ports. Her fleets were manned not only by the most experienced officers of her own empire, but notable Englishmen, Danes, and Dutch were enlisted in her service. Admiral Spiridov commanded the fleet, but he and all the armies were under the orders of Alexei Orlov, who had been appointed general. While these fleets and armies were sweeping victoriously through the archipelago and harassing the borders of the Turkish Empire, Catherine, always industrious in intrigues, kept up a secret correspondence with Frederick of Prussia pertaining to Poland. They mediated the partition of that nation. An interview, however, was necessary to perfect the design. Unwilling that other monarchs should discover their infamous intentions, and knowing their motives could not be concealed if an ostentatious visit was made by either party, they decided to resort to stratagem. Prince Henry, the brother of Frederick, received instructions to go to Russia with full powers to concert the desired measures with the Empress. It was given out that he intended making a visit to his sister, Queen of Sweden, and should return to Prussia by way of Denmark. While at Stockholm, he received pressing invitations from Catherine to visit her at Petersburg, in which she expressed her anxiety to entertain so illustrious a prince. As if it had not all been managed beforehand, Henry expressed unexpected pleasure, and with an apparent change of his plans, set out for Petersburg, accompanied by a brilliant suite. He was received with flattering attentions by the minister, Count Penin, and conducted in great state to the palace prepared for him. The first day of his arrival was passed with the most ceremonious etiquette, after which a series of entertainments were given that in magnificence outdid all the courts of Europe. One of these entertainments was given at the summer palace called Zarskoselo. It was situated at a distance of twenty-four versts, 
or sixteen miles from petersburg in an open country diversified with low picturesque hills and forests the road to it was lighted by more than a thousand lamps and every verst marked by a column of marble jasper or granite all along there were views of elegant country seats and gardens gothic palaces with their lofty towers and turrets chinese temples crested upon high artificial rocks villages built in the same style fanciful bridges and every other device by which the route could be made attractive and enchanting the palace itself was immense and dazzling within and without were profuse gilded ornaments every portion of the interior was fitted up in the richest and costliest style the extensive gardens were ornamented by artificial lakes dotted with charming wooded islands from one of which rose a turkish mosque from another an elegant structure for musical performances while from others shot up tall columns or egyptian pyramids miniature towns and villages a hermitage superb baths and picturesque ruins completed this luxurious resort that springing up in the midst of the bleak deserts of russia was the realization of a titania's kingdom to this magnificent and showy palace the empress conducted prince henry in an immense sledge followed by two thousand others containing a great number of ladies and the nobility all in masks and fancy dresses the ornaments along the road consisted of some novel display at every verst fireworks in every possible variety and unimagined beauty houses built to represent the style of different nations and enlivened with people dressed in corresponding costumes shepherds and shepherdesses exhibiting national dances and at a little distance from the palace an artificial volcano representing an eruption of mount vesuvius the festivities at the palace were equally ingenious and startling at table everything was arranged with such magician-like effect that when one wished to change his plate he had but to tap the centre and it fell through the table and floor and was immediately replaced by another that came up by the same means replenished with whatever he desired end of section thirty three